Well, good morning, church. How you doing today? Good. Well, it was 21 years ago today that our country experienced a terrible tragedy when terrorists took over some airplanes and turned them into missiles and attacked some of our national landmarks, killing thousands of our fellow Americans. In the wake of that tragedy, we experienced a moment of unity. And those moments often are unfortunately short-lived, but in that moment, we were no longer northerners or southerners, east coast, west coast, republican, democrat, black, brown, or white. We were simply Americans. And we enjoyed unity that lasted for a moment, but as so often happens, it was short-lived because in the wake of the tragedy, differences once again reared their head. We began dividing over things that should bring us together. How should we respond? Do we retaliate? Who do we retaliate against? How do we rebuild? Things that should build us up began tearing us apart. Now, 221 years ago, over in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, in Bourbon County, just outside of Paris, that there was a moment of harmony that actually led to a movement for unity. It was there that Barton Stone, a preacher at a small Presbyterian church, invited many other pastors to bring their churches together for a shared communion service. And they did. And so dozens of churches gathered together and thousands of people for the week in the beginning of August in 1801, over 10,000 people gathered at the Cane Ridge Meeting House and on the grounds there in Kentucky. That was about a tenth of the people who lived in Kentucky at that time gathered there in that space. And by the end of the week, over a thousand people had surrendered their lives to Jesus, claiming him as both Savior and Lord and determined to follow him for the remainder of their days and all of eternity. It was a beautiful revival, a beautiful thing that happened. And, and in that moment, it gave birth to a movement. About 20 years later, Thomas Campbell and his son Alexander Campbell had become part of that movement, giving more steam to it, and that movement built and, and continued to grow, continued to gain momentum, even through today, one of the fastest growing church movements in the world. That's the movement that our church, Oklahoma Christian Church, is part of, together with some other churches. Uh, we have a loose interdependence with one another, no high church ecclesiastical structure. We answer straight to God from each church, but a loose brotherhood of churches, churches that you'd probably be familiar with, that they have Christian church in their name, North Bullet and Southeast and Hikes Point and Northeast and Northside Christian Church, on and on and on it goes. And in that time, guys like Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell determined not to focus on the things that could differentiate them from other Christians. In fact, they determined to do just the opposite of that. That they determined not to go with things that would cause them to disagree, but actually to focus on the things that would bring them together. Restoring the New Testament spirit of what we see of New Testament early Christianity, restoring us to that, creating what they call the restoration movement. And they focused on things not that would make us Baptist or Lutheran or Methodist or Episcopalian or Catholic or whatever, but rather saying, no, we're going to choose distinctives that unite us. And they, they chose to 
lean into distinctives like these, saying, we are Christians only, but we are not the only Christians. If people agree with us on the essentials of faith, they are our sister or brother in the faith. Even though we might disagree on some lesser issues, we can agree on the most important ones. But we will simply call ourselves Christians only. Forget the other flavoring of that. That they chose distinctives like this saying, saying we are united in what is essential. We will choose to pursue unity in the essential matters. We will allow for liberty in matters that are non-essential. And through all of it, we will display love towards one another. That they chose to say the Bible will be their standard for determining what is essential. Saying that where the Bible speaks, we speak. And where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Now these weren't the only distinctives. They had others. They said there's no creed but Christ. We don't adhere to a particular creedal statement. We simply look at who Jesus is and we follow him as based on what we could tell in the New Testament. Their goal was to return us to a New Testament Christianity. Their goal 221 years ago was to actually return us to the spirit of what Jesus prayed for 2,000 years ago. Jesus' friend John records Jesus' prayer this way. Jesus said, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Did you know that that includes you? If you believe in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, Jesus was praying for you in that moment. Do you realize that Jesus prayed for you as one of his followers all the way back then? In fact, scripture tells us he still prays for us. He is in heaven interceding for us, praying on our behalf regularly. What a beautiful picture. Jesus went on and said, I pray that they will all be one. And catch this next phrase, just as, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. This isn't just a loose, hey, we attend the same church together. We say hi to each other on a Sunday morning when we see each other. We'll shake hands and go to an ABF or be part of a small group. We'll, we'll serve together sometimes. We'll, we'll kind of be friendly to each other. This is the unity of the triune God displayed in the people who follow that God. This is the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saying, we want our followers to enjoy the same kind of unity that we as the three-in-one Godhead experience. And why? He said, I pray this, that they will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me, Father. That our unity is a witness to a watching world. Jesus went on, he says, I've given them the glory that you gave me. Why? So they may be one as we are one. And he continues on praying. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity, perfect unity, that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. And, and so we see that love is a driving force here, this driving force of what Jesus was praying for us, that this unity is a steadfast, unyielding unity. It's, it's unbreakable, unshakable, unmistakable, a witness to the world so the world might know. And whenever John talks of love in his gospel, we, we got to look at what else he has said about love. We, we go back to John 3, 16, one of the most famous passages in, in the world and one of the most famous passages from the Bible when John records Jesus' statement. He said, for God loved, we got it, John three sixteen. Well, you know, he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish, that we'll have salvation. And he goes on in verse 17, so that we won't have condemnation. He came not to condemn us, but to save us. 
And so what that shows us is that our unity is expressed through our shared salvation. Our unity is expressed in this this union that we have in what Christ has done for us, that he has saved us, and that's an expression of this. And so receiving his love and giving his love is an expression of unity, that that is the number one thing that unites us, that we have a savior who has saved us. And we also see that unity is expressed through our shared mission, through shared mission with each other. That he prays that we would be one so the world might know, so the world might believe. That we would be unified in what we do. We see from the very beginning that our God is a God of unity. That that God, all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had part in the creation. We see that what God was doing in creation was creating a unity. That there was harmony in all things that existed before sin entered the picture. That God created us for a shared enjoyment of what he has done and to give glory to him, a shared purpose of giving glory to him. That we see that God was creating us for unity. We were created to be united with God, created in his image to have a relationship with him. And God gave people a very beautiful connection, a, un- a unity with one another. At the center point of it, right, with marriage and the very special, sacred unifying act for husbands and wives. Husbands, woo right? I mean, there's some joy in what God has created there. God created us for unity, but if God desires unity, you can rest assured that the enemy, Satan, hates unity. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. Satan has always sought to disrupt unity. But my grandfather lived in the forested hills of southern Indiana. He was one of the founders of the Indiana Woodland Owners Association. He was a teacher by trade, but he was a woodsman at heart. And so when he passed, I inherited some of his big saws, these huge saws with big teeth and two-person saws that we would, when I was little, kind of ride on. And supposed to hold the other end, but I was off the ground sometimes. And I inherited some of these wedges. Some of y'all know what this is. Anybody out there ever split wood before? Yeah, you know what this is. The hard work. This is a wedge designed to split apart what is created to be united, created to be together. This, you drive this in and the wood splits into two or more pieces. I inherited several of these, well-worn, well-used. This is the work of Satan in our lives, metaphorically. This is what he does. This is Satan's ploy to drive a wedge to split apart what God created to be together. That, that, that's his purpose. I mean, division is the devil's strategy. And right now, many of you are thinking back to long division in grade school saying, I knew, I knew math was evil. I knew that was of Satan. Knew it was of the devil. Now, math alone is not bad, but certain equations are. Satan wants to tear apart what God has put together. We see that all the time. We see that throughout our culture. We see that in, in different communities, different cultures, we see that in, in the world. Satan wants to drive people apart from one another. We see that in politics. We see it in race. We see it in homes. We see it in communities. We see it in marriages. It just keeps driving the wedge. We see it in the church. Too often, that's the work of the devil. Splitting apart what God has created to be together, just driving the wedge more and more and more. But here's the thing, if you've ever split wood, and some of you have, you know that 
dead wood splits easier than living wood. Wet wood doesn't split easy. You take a a living tree, cut that down, cut it up into segments, and try to split those logs. Good luck getting this thing in there to do its work. Dead wood splits a whole lot easier. Similarly, it's true of us that when we have the living water of Christ in us, when we are alive in Christ, we don't split very easily. John records Jesus telling his followers in John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and my word remains in you, you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. You won't split easily. You'll feel the effects, the blows, the strikes of the enemy, but you're not gonna be split by it. It won't divide you. That's why I'm such a fan of rooted. You got any rooted peeps in here today? Yeah, we do. I love it. I love it. And what I love about rooted is that rooted helps us stay connected to the vine. It helps us stay connected to Jesus, helps us plant our roots down deep into who Jesus is to to learn how to abide in him, to develop rhythms that help us stay united with Jesus and united with one another and helps us withstand the blows of the enemy when he's trying to drive a wedge or drive us apart from God and one another and everything else in life. We stay united because we develop these rhythms and it gives us relationship in those rhythms. I love Rooted. If you've not yet participated in Rooted, it's a 10-week experience. We're launching our fall season of Rooted coming up in a couple weeks. If you've not yet participated, it's not too late, but you're missing out. You need to sign up. I'd encourage you to sign up today. My boy Mark, our next steps pastor here, he'll be out in the lobby uh, right in front of the stone wall. See him after service. You can go to the next steps counter and say, I want to be part of Rooted. We'll get you signed up because you don't want to miss it. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just listen to all the people who said, woo, and I said, hey, give me a woo for Rooted if you've done it. There you go. Just ask them. They'll tell you it's worth it. And that's what I love about that, right? That God gives us means to stay together. But, but unity is this weird thing. It's, it's kind of like transformation. When we give ourselves to Jesus, we surrender to him, we're not just like magically like, oh, I'm never going to sin again. And I'm like, walk with Jesus perfectly and I got it all together. Like, no, it comes over time. That's why we need things like rooted. It's why we need things like small groups. Why we need to immerse ourselves in scripture and read it and study it and learn and let it transform us and change us. And bit by bit by bit by bit, we grow in Christ likeness to look, live, love, and lead more and more and more like Jesus. But it happens over time. Unity is kind of the same way. It doesn't come natural. It doesn't come all at once. We have to fight for it. We have to cultivate it. We have to pursue it. We have to choose it. My buddy Nate Ross, who preaches at Northside Christian Church over in New Albany, he he says it this way. He says, unity is about as natural as a two-year-old who wants to share everything they have. If you've ever been around a two-year-old, you know unity does not come easily because little kids don't like to share. They like to keep it, right? Nobody else has touched the toy in forever. As soon as somebody does, it's mine, right? That's kind of how we are. Like as adults, we never really grow out of that. We just get a little more refined with how we display it. Unity does not come easy, so we gotta choose it. This is why Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says this. And, and the church at Ephesus is composed of, uh, of these Jewish Christians, people who had been Jewish and now they're following Jesus, and you've had these Gentile Christians, non-Jewish people who are following Jesus, and they're coming together and they're trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus together because they used to be enemies. I don't like you, you don't like me, but now we're together. We're brothers and sisters of Jesus. How does this work? They're trying to figure it out. And Paul gives them this instruction through the Holy Spirit. He says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Now, notice what he does not say. He doesn't just say, give it a chance, give it a shot, try your best, maybe it'll happen. 
He says, make every effort. Leave nothing undone. Give yourself wholly and fully to it. Pursue unity in the Holy Spirit. Binding yourselves together with peace. This idea of binding, it's taking two things and wrapping them tightly with leather. Using leather straps to bind you. It, to put it in our, our day and age, this would be duct taping yourself to somebody else using the whole roll. You, you duct tape yourself bonded together with somebody else. It's not coming easily undone. You're bound up with each other. You're strapped to each other. You're wrapped up with each other. He says, make that bond and peace. And he goes on. And, and listen to the oneness language that he uses. He says, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and all and living through all. Did you hear the oneness? If not, you're asleep. <laughs> I mean, just listen to the oneness language there. Paul speaks of a fierce commitment to unity. And he speaks of this fierce commitment to unity for the sake of the glory of God and the sake of the mission of God. So, friends, let me encourage you with this. Let's all be great students of God's word, studying God's word, reading God's word, allowing God's word to transform us, and let's develop deep convictions based on the truth of God's word. Let's form our ideas and our theology based on the study of God's word. Let's be able to defend it and teach it. But let's never utilize that to divide ourselves. Instead, let us find a deep unity in our shared salvation and our common mission. And let's allow that to put God's unifying power on display. Wouldn't that just be a kick in the teeth of the devil? Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Friends, we're gonna disagree at times, and we're gonna disagree about some important things at times. That happens, that happened in the early church, but the early church demonstrated that they were more concerned about their love for one another, their bond with one another, and their mission with one another than with the things that separated them. We see that throughout Acts, we see that throughout the New Testament, and so we must choose that same level. What we learned from studying the New Testament is that oftentimes what we disagree about is not nearly as important as how we disagree. That we could disagree without being disagreeable. We could disagree without being divisive. And wouldn't that be an awesome witness in our cancel culture of these days? So let's pursue unity even in the face of areas where we might disagree. And let's, let's block ourselves from the sledge hitting the wedge of disunity into our lives. If we don't cultivate a fierce commitment to unity, if we don't pursue the bond of peace with one another, if we don't link up, then we simply make ourselves vulnerable. The wedge will hit and we'll split. We see this happen in our culture. We see this happen in friendships. We see this happen in communities. We see this happen in marriages. We see this happen in the church. We allow small things to become major wedges between us. We, 
have something come up and instead of choosing to address the issue together, saying, hey, we're bound up in this thing together, so together we're gonna address the issue. Instead, we get this combativeness and say, oh, you're against me and I'm against you, so now this thing's driving us apart, let's throw fists, and that's just the wrong way to go about it. We gotta bind ourselves together and realize that whatever issue is seeking to drive us apart is a issue out there, that we have a oneness that can't be separated, and so let's deal with the issue together instead of saying, oh, we're on different sides of this, let's come at each other. No, let's come together at the issue. Years ago, in a different church, in a different state, I was doing some marriage counseling with a couple And at one point, the husband just kept going on and on and on. I mean, like for several, several minutes, just ranting about how his wife did not load the dishwasher correctly. Anybody been there? Anybody like, you do know there is a correct way to load the dishwasher, right? Amen? The correct way is to put the dishes in the dishwasher. The incorrect way is to leave them in the sink or on the countertop, right? Like, let's just give that away. If you're putting them in, you're doing it, right? Now, I will say, though, there are better ways to load it than other ways. I'm still trying to teach that to some of the members of my family. But if the dishes end up in the dishwasher, we're winning. So I'm okay with that. So this guy was just going on and on and on and on and on. So finally I interjected with a question. I said, hey, bro, bro, hold on. It sounds like, it sounds like you're willing to divorce your wife and trade in all the beautiful memories and all the grand experience that you guys, this life you've cultivated with each other over the years. It sounds like you're willing to trade that in because she loads the dishwasher differently than you prefer. Whoa, hold up, whoa, whoa. I mean, come on, man. Like, when you say it that way, you really make me look like, I mean, that makes me sound pretty bad, man. Like, I'm like, I'm like bro, that's what I hear you saying. Hey, paused. Well, I guess it does kind of sound that way. <laughs> now, the beautiful thing is we got them to a point that they were pursuing unity. We got them to a point where they could laugh about dishwasher issues. Now, the reality is there was a lot more than just a dishwasher. There, there were a whole lot of other issues. There was hurt. There was miscommunication. Always is. Always is. But they got to a place where they said, no, a dishwasher can't be the thing that brings down our marriage. Good. And I'm happy to tell you, it's been a lot of years, and that couple isn't just surviving. They are thriving. And they laugh about dishwasher issues now. And they deal with those things together. But how often in the church do we let dishwasher issues become the things that split us apart You know, our movement is founded on this principle that we will pursue unity in what's essential. We will allow liberty in the non-essential areas and and all of it, we're gonna choose love with one another. And so we gotta determine what is essential. And, And honestly, the essential matters are the matters of salvation. The essential matters, this is a pretty short list. But this list is so much more important than anything on any other list. This is the common ground that we have to choose to stay united on. That, that this issue of what's essential, the short lift, list, that the matters of salvation, that the, the reality that there is a God who exists three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and he has always existed and he always will. And he owns the beginning. He created and he created us, but we turned from him in rebellion with sin. And so, because of our sin, punishment, was demanded, penalty needed to be paid. 
But instead of choosing to condemn us, he chose to save us. And so that God came for us in the form of Jesus, who was born as a human, fully God, fully man. He lived sinlessly. He died a brutal death on a cross to pay the punishment for our sin. He was crucified, he was dead, he was buried, he rose three days later in bodily form, he resurrected, and then he ascended to heaven, and one day he will come back to claim his victory over this world, and all who side with him win in the end. God owns the beginning, God owns the end, and he owns everything in between. And the way we side with him is by putting our faith, our hope, our trust in Jesus Christ, trusting what he has done for us, not what we could do. Because we can't do enough to earn his salvation, we can't do so much that He will just turn away from us. If we put our hope, our trust in him, we are his and he is ours. And we're in this with one another. And we are saved by his grace, by his mercy. And we unwrap that grace and we take access to it by faith. And anyone who agrees with us on those essentials is never our enemy. They are our sister or our brother in faith. And we remember that we are Christians only, but not the only Christians. And that is what unites us. Now, there's a secondary category of important matters. And honestly, this list is pretty extensive. This list gets long. And we won't go through the whole list, don't worry. I don't know that we could go through the whole list. But what's true on this list is though it's extensive, it should never be divisive. These are matters for how we live out our Christian faith, how we pursue Jesus. And these include things like how we interpret some of the prophecies in Scripture, the timing of the beginning, how the timing of the end will all play out. This includes things like Calvinism and Arminianism and some deep theology, how the church would be governed, the roles of women and men in the church, things that are important, but our salvation does not depend on them. And we should have convictions on those things, but we should not have disunity on those things. When we place too much stress on those doctrinal differences, what we find throughout church history is that this This is when division occurs. This is what Stone and Campbell were working against. Do you remember learning to divide back in grade school? Yeah, we're back at math, some you're like, oh man, come on. You had the numerator on top, that's the number on top, and then the denominator on bottom, that was the thing that was dividing the number on top. Well, here in the church, we have a oneness, a oneness in Christ. And then we have all these other things that we too often allow to divide that oneness out, and we end up with denominations and a belief of saying, well, I'm I'm gonna have my particular flavor of Christianity, and and we choose our tribe, and we choose our people, and we work against each other. And I don't think God ever intended it to be that way. We have this denominationalism, and by the way, I just gotta speak a little pet peeve here. A different denomination is not a different religion. If they believe in Jesus, and he's king, he's Lord, he's savior, and he's the only one, they are Christian. They are not a different religion, just a different flavor of Christianity. Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, you name it, it's okay. But we see too much of this happening. Now then, the third area, we have matters that are essential, matters that are important. Then we just have matters of interest and opinion. And and these are really things that matter to us as individuals, our preferences, but they really don't matter that much in the scope of eternity. The style of music how we dress for church, what time or what day of the week we do church, how we gather, how we take communion. Do we all come forward? Do we dip the bread in the juice? Do we use juice? Do we use wine? Do we, oh, wow. 
Those things should not divide us. These matters of opinion, which translation of the Bible we use, that's not an area we should be divided on, ever. But we know, while those things are often the least important, they can often be the most divisive. Matters of opinion, matters of preference, let's be real honest, matters of pride are the things that divide us. Because after all, we are Americans, and that Americanism we've been so enculturated with, it, it flavors how we come to Jesus, and it flavors how we do church. Because the American spirit is this fierce individualism, this idea of freedom and individual freedom and personal freedom, and I get it my way, and I should be able to defend for me. And, and so we have this very personal relationship with Jesus. Well, my preferences are more important than yours, and, and the way I want it is the way we, and, and it, this infiltrates the church, and division happens, and, and we see this other thing happening in, in the U.S., and you know this to be true, the cancel culture, that we, we have a low tenacity, a low commitment to one another, what I call a low level of stick with itness because I like making up words. <laughs> stick with itness. We've just lost sight of this. I mean, we just look around, look at the relationships, look at how people dismiss one another and dismiss friendships over silly issues. Oh, you don't agree with me on this particular thing. We can't be friends any longer. Really? Really? I, I mean, it's crazy. We, we see marriages split because of a lack of stick with itness because you're just choosing to let the lesser things become the biggest things. And what we see through scripture is that spiritual growth, Christian maturity, always happens by going through the challenges and it never happens by avoiding them. You, you take the, the circuitous way around the challenge, you're not gonna end up with a robust faith. You, you know, we saw this over the summer. We, we were studying the book of James and James reminds us, right, that we are to consider it pure joy when we face challenges and trials of any kind because those challenges develop perseverance and that perseverance develops our maturity in faith. And, and we lose that. We, we lose the perseverance. We lose the stick with itness, And we bail on that. And when that happens, I mean, this is, this, is a, this is a theme throughout scripture that God wants to use the people around us to refine us and grow us and form us in his image. And God wants to use us in their lives for the same so when we bail on these things, we bail too soon, we'll miss the redemption story that Jesus is authoring through your circumstances. You bail too soon on your marriage, you're gonna miss the comeback story. You bail on your friendships, you're gonna end up alone. You bail when church challenges get too much, you're gonna end up with weak faith or lukewarm faith, which I don't even know if that's faith at all. And let me just speak this to us too. The early church, the New Testament church, the church of the first century knew absolutely nothing of church hopping or church shopping. This idea of, well, the preacher got pretty fiery today and I don't know if I liked what he was saying, so I might find a preacher down the street who's a little bit softer on me. Oh, he wore jeans and white shoes. He's kind of a goofy looking guy. I don't know if I wanna keep going to that church. I think I, the preacher needs to dress different. Knew nothing of that. Why? Because there was no church down the street. If you were at the church in Ephesus and you wanted a different church, guess what? You're packing up your stuff. You're moving to Pamphylia or Smyrna or Laodicea or Rome or Jerusalem because there's only one church in each of those areas. Because ultimately, friends, there's only one church and that's us. And any and everyone who agrees with us on the essentials, that's the church. And so we bail for lesser issues 
we miss what God's up to. And it's not bad to have our preferences. And it's not bad to say, well, I prefer this and I like this. And hey, I think this would be a good thing for us to experience. And it's not bad for us to do some different things at different times and different seasons. But those things should never, ever be divisive to split God's people apart from one another. So often the wedges in the church are dishwasher issues. We're willing to trade the unity of the spirit for things that in light of eternity, in light of the salvation of a lost world, other things are just too often pathetic. That breaks God's heart. When, when we trade our unity for those kinds of things, we wound our witness to a waiting and watching world. I mean, our unity is to draw them to God, to, to show a picture of the Trinity. And when we lose that, people are all saying, I don't want any part of that. They don't even get along with each other. I like got the most dysfunctional family on earth. There's a church family. There's 4,000 different denominations. Why do I want to be part of that? That should break us. That should break us. One more equation for you. See, when the oneness of God is divided by anything other than what's essential. Listen, if, if somebody doesn't agree on the essentials, we're really not united in the first place because they're really not following God. But anything other than that, when the forces of disunity seek to break apart oneness, the result of that equation is God's broken heart and it should be our broken heart as well. So how do, we, how do we find unity? We do just what Paul has instructed us to do. We make every effort to keep ourselves united in the spirit. And if we can't keep it, then we gotta pursue it. Maybe we don't have unity to keep so we gotta chase hard after it. But we make every effort, leaving nothing undone to stay united in the love of God and the mission he has for us. And we bind ourselves together and that's where we'll find peace. And this is God's heart for his people. So how do we do that? I mean, there's so many issues we could argue about. There's so little to be gained by arguing. So we should develop deep conviction based on the study of scripture and we should hold to that. We should be able to, to teach it. We should be able to, to explain it, but we should never allow that to divide us. We should be able to disagree without being divisive, without being disagreeable. So here's how we make the effort. Let me just give you two things and they don't need a lot of explanation. Just tell you, celebration is the language of unity. When we celebrate what God is doing in another person's life, we find unity. When we cheer them on, we find unity. When we breathe courage into them, that's what encouragement means. When we breathe courage into them, we find unity. But complaint, complaint is the language of disunity. When we choose to talk bad about another person behind their back, as opposed to talking good of them behind their back, disunity. When we choose to grumble and gossip, well, I don't like this, or I don't like that, or we didn't do it the right way. It just drives the wedge in deep. Friends, let us celebrate what God is up to in one another's lives. Let us celebrate often what God is up to right here in our midst with our church. Let us pursue unity with a fierce commitment.
About 20 years ago, I was a high school social studies teacher in a small farm town in the cornfields of Illinois. Town of about 2,000. The high school had maybe 200 students in it. And all the churches in that town, none of them had the people power or the financial power to hire a student minister for the church. So I show up, a young punk teacher, early 20s, and I introduced Fellowship of Christian Athletes to that school. And I told the students, I said, you don't have to be a Christian and you don't have to be an athlete to come, but we're gonna talk about Jesus every time and we're gonna use a lot of sports analogies. And we had dozens of students begin showing up. A fourth of the school shows up. Half of the school shows up. We had over half the school at one of our first big events. And within a short amount of time, I found myself sitting with the pastors of several different churches in that town. Methodist preacher, Baptist preacher, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Catholic, on and on. And these men sat together and they said, hey, Fitz, you probably gather that we don't agree on all the smaller issues, but we agree on this. Jesus alone is king. And we wanna see these students, the kids in our community, come to know him and walk with him forever. And while we would love to see it happen in our town, we're not so arrogant to say it's gotta happen in any one of our church buildings. So if it's happening in the school building, we're on board and we're with you and we're a team to support you. And those men would gather with me and encourage me and pray for me and fund our ministry and support me. Isn't that the way it should be? We agree on the essentials. What a beautiful picture that was for such a young guy at that time of the way the kingdom is supposed to be. So friend, when differences arise, and they will, and when we disagree on matters of interpretation and methodology and strategy, and, and we will, I pray that even more, we will choose unity. To know that it's really not about you or me, our preferences, our ways. It's really not about any of those lesser issues because it is all about King Jesus and his glory and his mission to seek and save the lost. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God of unity, a unity that we cannot even comprehend of Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons in one. God, we thank you that you invite us to experience that same kind of unity with yourself and with one another. And God, we confess that too often we have sought after lesser things. And we've allowed such small things to create such great division between us. God, we repent of that collectively now. We put that at your feet. We apologize. We confess our sin of disunity. And God, we ask that you would give us the courage to unite. We ask that you would give us the clarity to unite bound by your love, bound by your spirit, bound by your mission, that we would be united in that. And God, that as we seek to be unified in you and united with one another, God, we pray that you would create revival right here, right here in our hearts, right here in our church, right here in our land. And God, that the world would see through the unity of your people here and with our other churches, with our other brothers and sisters, that the world would see through our unity and that they would believe because of what they see. Oh God, we pray this always and only for your glory and yours alone. Amen.